This lesson is on the devil. It's part one of two. I like this one. I loved it. I loved studying this. The first time I wrote this was in 2015. And before it was before JB had done the Angels and Demons, which he did a terrific job of going in depth with who Satan is and who the devil is. <clears throat> but this is a fun study because the devil is an interesting being, an interesting entity. And he does. He pulls on our flesh. Hi. Just like I talked about in the prayer, Satan's been around for a long time. He's been around since the beginning, and he has seen how human beings interact in any given circumstance and situation. And in that way, he understands our nature better than we do, because he's been around for you know, at least 6,000 years, depending on how long you think people have been around. Uh, and in that, he's seen a lot. He's done a lot. The good news is he's not like God. He's not omnipresent. He can only be in one place at one time. We're going to see this next week, really. But he has this horde of helpers that help carry out his will. And it's really weird to think about that, to think about it that way. Because when we think about Satan, you might think about this ethereal spirit that's just out there somewhere. Or maybe you don't even think he's a, a, an entity or a being. Some people just think he's a manifestation of evil. Or just the idea of evil, and it's not really a real thing. We're going to see today that he is real. And Scripture has a lot to say about Satan. Let's start by looking what it says here in Ephesians 6, which is talking about how we deal with him. I have entitled this The Devil Part 1, Our Adversary. <clears throat> At the end of this lesson, you'll know why we say he's our adversary. <coughs> but Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 to put on the full armor of God. Why? So that we'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Okay, that makes sense. Because our struggle isn't against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's weird to think about. If you look at that verse, there's so many questions that you could ask. What in the world are the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places? We've talked a lot already in this class, the part of our identity is that when we believe, which part of us is made alive? Spiritual part? It's our spirit. The human spirit is made alive. We're dealing with spiritual forces. Part of your identity as a believer is that you are a spirit. You have a body. You are a spirit. The part of you that relates to God is spiritual. But we see here that there's, uh, it says against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. There's a spiritual realm that our senses don't have access to in this body. Whether you want to say it's a realm, whether you want to say it's a dimension, however you want to conceptualize it, we, our senses can't pick up on it. But it's there. The Bible says it is. And we're going to talk about what we do about that here in this first lesson. So let's see the goals in review. The first one's pretty simple. We just want to form a base of knowledge and understanding of our adversary, say. Okay? That's just, you know, recognize he's here, figure out what Scripture has to say about him, and then what we're going to do with it, which is the next one. To know and understand how Scripture describes Satan and why it describes him that way. And then the third goal is to know and understand what Scripture means when it says to stand firm against Satan's schemes and then how to apply that directive. It's not enough to know, to know something. What is the goal of all knowledge? Application. It's application. It's not enough to know it, it's to put it into practice. Knowledge by, by itself or alone puffs up, as it says in 1 Corinthians. 
but applying it is where the wisdom is. So quick review. We've talked about that walking in the newness of life means that we stop letting sin reign in us based on the power that comes from our position in Christ. That's Romans 6. Uh, we put our faith in Christ. We're made spiritually alive. Uh, the bondage or the chains of the flesh no longer have dominance over us. We don't have to obey it. Uh, but we, we've been made new. We're a new creature. The Holy Spirit indwells us, and we can live a life that's pleasing to God. Second is utilizing the power that comes from our position can be difficult because of our sin nature. That's our flesh. And that's our first enemy that we saw in the series, the last two lessons. What do you think that has to do with this lesson? What does Satan have to do with your identity? Yeah, that's it. Because of your flesh, you have you already have this part of yourself that wants to do what you want, apart from what God wants for you. That's bad enough in that we ourselves like sin and we want to engage in it. But it's extra bad because Satan knows it. And he's going to lay traps and snares. He's going to be he's in control of this fallen world system uh, that pulls against our flesh. There's good news, though. That's Scott. You don't have to sign in. I'll sign you in. Yeah, you do. Our human spirit gives us the ability to relate to God, which we've already talked about. And the Holy Spirit gives us the capacity to live apart from sin now, but the flesh still pulls us in. And that creates an internal tension and a dilemma. All right, any questions about the review? Does all that make sense? Okay. So read this part that I have here. It's easy to know that we should walk in the newness of life. That sounds good. We're new creatures, we should act like it, right? But it's hard to do it. We have an internal weakness, and our adversary knows it better than we do. That our flesh was our first enemy, but our next one, Satan, he's intentional. Underline that word intentional. He is proactive. He is seeking to tempt us to live like our old selves. He likes it when Christians fail, and we're going to see why. His goals are to keep us down or to keep us comfortable in apathy, which means just not caring. That keeps us from serving or keeps us from enjoying the life that the Lord has prepared for us. So being successful in our walk relies at least in part on our ability to stand firm against Satan's schemes. We have to walk knowing that he's going to tempt us and appeal to our flesh. Based on the evidence in the world around us, Satan is gaining steam. Who can deny that? <clears throat> Do you guys see the same thing that I see? That in your lifetime, the culture and society is getting worse? Who's winning this battle? You have to say he is. I, don't, I mean, so a lot of you are close to my age or, or older. I remember when I was eight years old and The Simpsons came on TV, it was the worst thing. Yeah, how disrespectful for a cartoon. Kids are watching this cartoon kid treat his parents a certain way and saying a certain thing. That is like PBS today. And that's nothing compared to what's on TV. And the world has changed, and it's changed fast. I'm only 42. And you know that was 35 years ago. Think about how far we've come with, with internet, and computers and cell phones. <clears throat> Listen to this. Uh, the percentages of people in the U.S. who strongly agree, okay, not just agree, but strongly agree, 
that the Bible is true in its teaching have declined from 48% to 33% from 2011 to 2016. So I wrote this study in 2016. And in the five years previous, in the United States, 15% of people declined, or the, the, the percentage of people declined that said they strongly agree that the Bible is true. The percentage of people who strongly disagree with that statement, so they would say the Bible isn't true, increased from 12% to 23% in the same time. So the people who are solid about it are lessening, and the people who are doubting it strongly are growing. And that was just from 2011 to 2016. In the UK, who we always follow, in culture by the way, approximately 60% of adults believe that Je they don't even believe that Jesus was a real person. 60%, 6 out of 10. Much less the Son of God. And we know that since then it's gotten even worse. We send missionaries to England, Less than 1% of England's population is now believing. And then there, here's a more recent one. In 2020, uh, Lifeway, the Baptist Publishing Company, they published a study which showed that 52% of Americans believe that Jesus was a great teacher, but not the Son of God. We are now in the minority. We're on the visiting team. That means 48% of the people in this country <coughs> would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. The same study that showed those 48%, only 48% of Americans believe that the Bible is completely accurate. So we've, we've hit a turning point, a tipping point. In all of those same projections, the Pew uh, Research Group just did a study in September that said that in the next 20 years that Christianity will not be the major religion in our country. So get prepared. If you think the battle is hard now, wait till we're in the extreme minority. Because it's coming. Our country's trending in that direction because our enemy is at work. And our enemy wins when Christians don't understand their identity. That is why it has happened. People don't understand what it means to be in Christ. They don't know what it means to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Because they always put themselves back under the bondage of the flesh. They just want to be comfortable in their own little corner of the world. Don't bother me. Let me do my thing. I'm going to do me. Everybody else can do them, and we'll all be fine. That's not true. And you don't have to look outside of our country to see it. If you take a snapshot of Satan's plan at this particular point in time, it seems like his schemes are producing his desired results. He has a fallen world system, which is a weird concept, and we're going to look at it in, three, in two and three weeks. Uh, <clears throat> but it's set up in such a way that it appeals to our flesh, causing our, our time, our thoughts, our feelings, our aspirations, our activities <coughs> to be consumed by the world system. Whether it's video games, social media, sports, whatever it is, we're just putting this comfortable little apathetic box that distracts us from what God wants us to do. And I'm not being legalistic. I'm not. I'm not saying that everybody should be a Bible-thumping, scripture-memorizing uh, zealot. I, th I mean, we should, but that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that there is a consequence to not engaging in the Spirit. There's a consequence uh, to not standing firm against the Satan's schemes. Because it's by these means, by his means, that we're consumed, that rewards are lost, which we'll see later, 
and their people's souls are ultimately devoured. So who is this adversary? Who is the devil? That the Bible describes as someone who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. What is he, and what's his goal? Where is he right now? What's he up to? When did his work begin? When will we finally be rid of him? These are all questions that I want to look at this week and next. How does he accomplish his goals? Let's start at the very beginning. Let's start by what he's called. Scripture has lots of different names for him in lots of different contexts. And so let's start there. The first one is Satan. Uh, this word is used about 52 times. It's from the Hebrew word Satan, meaning adversary, or to oppose. Satan's actual name, given in Scripture, means that he's an adversary. It means that he's in opposition. He opposes. So then the question becomes, well, whose adversary is he and what does he oppose? It's right there, but let's talk about it. He opposes God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. He opposes us, especially believers. He opposes angels. And generally speaking, he opposes God's will. He stands in opposition to all four of those things. <coughs> so when we say that he opposes God, what do, we, what do we mean? When you think about that, and you think in your brains, how does he oppose God? Trying to be his equal. Yeah. Not even trouble in the first place. Yeah, that's right. Satan's ultimate fall came because he wanted to be like God. He wanted to be like the Most High, he says. So he stands in opposition to God. We're going to see later that he set up this counterfeit system where he's the counterfeit ruler. God has a desire and a plan. Satan has always tried to carry out an opposite plan, to stand in God's way of accomplishing that plan. You think about Herod. What did, what, what, when Jesus was born, what did Herod do? He tried to kill who? Jesus. He tried to kill Jesus. So, so what did he do? <coughs> All Jewish male babies. Think he was possessed? I do. It was God's will for Jesus to come and die. Herod set his will in opposition to that. You look all throughout Scripture, Satan's always trying to destroy the lineage, the seed, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Judah, all the way through, you look and see how God protects that seed, even while they're in the wilderness. Uh, Satan's always trying to destroy God's plan. For believers, it's God's will for us that we grow and that we become more and more conformed to His image. Satan sets his will in opposition to that and tries to keep that from happening. He tries to keep unbelievers from believing and believers from serving and growing. The next one is the devil. This one is second. It's used about 35 times. It's from the Greek diabolos, meaning slanderer. Slanderer. A slander is someone who makes a false spoken statement that causes people to have a bad opinion of someone. How does Satan slander us? Goes up and tells God, well, look how bad he is. Is that true? 
That is true. Did you guys have you have you ever heard that Jesus is our advocate? That's a legal term. Satan is called the accuser of the brethren, we're gonna see later. He's going to accuse us to God, and for those who are in Jesus, there's no condemnation. We'll never be judged and found guilty because we're in Christ. He is our advocate. He shuts Satan's mouth in that way. He slanders God by trying to trick people, just like he did Eve. I put Genesis 3.15 there. He said, God, God doesn't really love you. If he did, he'd want you to be like him. But he doesn't want you to know good from evil. Or else he, he'd let you eat from that tree. Does he really love you? Did he really say that you're going to die? The third one is Beelzebul. This is a weird one. It's used about seven times from the word that's very similar. It's traditionally a name or a form of a name associated with the prince of the demons and probably meaning lord of the flies or lord of that which flies or demonic flies. That's a weird name. But that's a proper name that he's given. Four, John calls him the evil one. The word evil comes from the word paneros, having the idea of being a vicious character, <coughs> bringing hardship, peril, and causing pain or trouble. That's pretty self-explanatory. Satan is a vicious character. He does bring hardship, peril, and he causes pain and trouble. And then I put this, this whole other set of things together because they describe his position. In 2 Corinthians, he's called the God of this world or God of this age. In John, he's called the ruler of this world. In Ephesians, he's called the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. All of these titles, to some degree, describe Satan's position over this arranged system of this cosmos or this world system which is an abstract but organized system or construct of society of culture economics education entertainment religion philosophy that's all the world system that he's over it's his primary weapon used to appeal to the flesh of humanity each one of our individual fleshes and to consume every aspect of our being and to keep us from a relationship or fellowship with god we're going to see this uh, in two and three lessons when we do study on the world system. But the world, will define it then, is the counterfeit framework of existence maintained by the counterfeit God, which is who? And that's to keep us from a genuine existence with the genuine God. Okay? Does that make sense? The world is the counterfeit, which means it's fake. It's a fake framework of existence maintained by the counterfeit God to keep us from a genuine existence with the genuine God. I'm not going to go into it in detail today because we're going to cover it, but you think about everything that this world offers right now. Money, sex, <coughs> power, and authority, uh, all of the stuff that we crave, all the stuff that we want, all the stuff that we strive for. That's all a sideshow. It is. It's a counterfeit <coughs> existence. Because it's just a speck of our uh, time of, of, of being alive or existing. We will all exist for eternity. Yet in this one little dot, we chase after all this stuff that doesn't matter. You're not taking any of that with you. You're not taking our money. 
We're not taking our power. We're not taking our reputation. We're not taking our prestige. We're not taking sex. We're not taking any of that with us into the next life or into the kingdom. But so much of what we do right now is motivated for today for right now. That's because that's how Satan has it set up. We're going to see it. Six, he's called the accuser of the brethren or our brethren in Revelation. He is. He's our accuser. His goal of distracting us from God, tempting us to sin and accusing us because we do sin is constantly thwarted by Christ. Jesus lived a sinless life, that perfect keeper of all law, which qualified him to be our substitute. We talked about this in week one. His death eliminated all sin for all people for all time. And he now advocates on our behalf against our accuser. That's a powerful statement. The author of Hebrews talks about this. We have a great high priest. We have an advocate. Someone who's interceding for us. He's our intercessor. Here's one quote that applies to Satan accusing us as we walk in the newness of life with other believers. H.A. Ironside was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. He actually taught J.B. And he has a quote that says, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Let's leave the dirty work to him. I think so often, you know, we talk about whether or not Christianity has been successful and who's really winning right now. I think so often in the body we lose when we start attacking each other. When we start pointing our finger at other people and pointing out their faults. When we do that, who are we acting like? It's exactly what he does. He's the accuser of the brethren. Let's leave that to him. We have enough problems on our own. We're supposed to love, support, edify, build up, all of those things that our gifts are for. Just like his work to deceive takes many forms, Satan himself has taken different forms or will take forms. Let's see it. The first form we see him in is in Genesis is the serpent. In Genesis he's called the serpent. In Revelation at the end he's called the serpent of old. <coughs> the way that scripture describes the form and character of Satan as he first appeared to mankind and the way which scripture refers to him towards the end as he's chained for a thousand years. And I did make a note here to say and you can see it that Genesis describes the serpent as the crafty one. The most crafty of all creation. He is. Revelation is weird because it's apocalyptic. It's, it's end times, and so the imagery in it isn't always literal, but maybe it is. But he's described as the great red dragon. Perhaps a figurative reference to emphasize Satan's nature, which is ferocious or powerful or aggressive. However, it's a possibility that given his history of taking other forms, he may literally take the form of a great red dragon towards the end. We don't know. Let me ask you. Was there anything different about the serpent that talked to Adam and Eve than snakes that we see today? Yeah, they, 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 they did. They had legs. And they talked. Maybe. Eve didn't seem surprised that the serpent was talking, but one of the punishments for the serpent was what? Crawl. Yeah, they lost. They had to crawl on the dust to crawl on the ground and eat dust. Who knows what they look like? Who knows? Here's a scary one. Number, <coughs> number three, he's called an angel of light. 
Paul mentions that Satan masquerades as an angel of light or a good angel. And Satan and his workers evidently presented themselves as supernaturally authoritative in order to promote false religion and teaching. Can you think of any religion that was established because somebody saw an angel of light? Mormon. I have no doubt that Joseph Smith saw something. It's weird to think about. The scripture says here, Satan just masquerades as an angel of light to deceive people. It's weird to think about. What was seven? Oh, sorry, that's Lucifer. Yeah, sorry. This he's called Lucifer, which means the shining star or the morning star, shining one. Uh, this is what he was called before the fall. <coughs> By the fall, he his fall. He he protect, He actually protected God's throne. He was beautiful. He was the most beautiful of God's creation. Top dog. But he wanted to be like God, and so he convinced some of the angels to go with him. We call those demons that fallen angels. And Satan's sin is the same as ours, by the way. It's pride. Just like we've talked about with our flesh. When we do what we want, regardless of what God wants for us, that's prideful. We all want to look out for number one. Satan said, I want to be just like God. And so he's trying to make himself out to be one, even today. Here's the point. Even though he's called many things and he takes many forms of scripture, all these things demonstrate not just who he is, but his work and his goals. So the bottom line that we can tell from his names, here's the takeaway, is that he's the adversary. What, is the ad, what's, what, is, what does Satan mean? It's the adversary. Who does he stand in opposition to? God. God, Jesus, us. He's our accuser. He's our deceiver. He's counterfeit. <coughs> he's the prince of the power of the air, and he's in charge of the fallen world system. Okay, so that is a very basic, just based on what he's called, we learn some things about his character. We learn some things about who he is and what he's up to. I want to make it quick. The section 5.3 is short. But it's important because a lot of people do not conceptualize Satan as a person, or not a person, but a being. They think that he's some sort of manifestation of evil. So a quick note should be mentioned regarding his reality. Some people think of him as a literary device known as personification. They want to believe that Satan as a unique being isn't real, but he's just a way to make tangible the idea of evil or temptation or malice. Satan is a real being. He is not simply a personification of evil or an abstract ideal. Okay? And I gave, there's lots of different ways to prove this point, but I just picked three out of Scripture. In John 14, 13, <coughs> Jesus and the disciples leave their physical location because something physical is heading their way. Okay? He says, but the evil one's coming. And so they get up and leave. You wouldn't leave your physical location if there was nothing to run from. Oh, and he calls him. He, in, I, what should, you guys want to read it real quick? I made a note here, so let me just read it. You may not be able to see it in English, but we'll check it out. 
So John 14.30, he says, I will not spend much more time with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing for me. Okay, so the he, he's clearly a person. He's not an abstract thing. Then Mark 4, Luke 4, Mark 1, Jesus and Satan actually have a conversation. This is the temptation of Jesus. Jesus, Just as Jesus is not a personification of good in this account, Satan is not a personification of evil. They were both real people having a real conversation for a real purpose, by the way. Jesus was tempted, yet without sin. It was to show us that Jesus was without sin. John 16, Revelation 20, we're going to see that Satan is held accountable for his actions. Ideas can't be held accountable. Satan is going to be held accountable for his actions when he's thrown into the, or into the lake of fire. Beings are held accountable. Okay. So we've got this, this being. He, is, he stands in opposition to God and to us. He's deceiving humans. Then when we sin, when we fall into his traps and snares, he accuses us for sinning, <coughs> which <coughs> says something about who he is. He's counterfeit, and he's real. So why isn't it enough? I said it isn't enough to know what Satan is called and what he's up to. So let me ask you something, then why? Why isn't it enough to simply know what he's up to? Don't get blindsided. <laughs> yeah, we're going to see that in just a second, for sure. <clears throat> Isn't this whole thing about putting application behind the knowledge? Yeah. It's important to think about it, and this is something that you should, you should, it should become part of your understanding of anything. The goal of all knowledge isn't knowledge. It's not to simply know it, but it's to use it, apply it. If this step is true, and the Bible says it is, then what are we going to do about it? Because there are consequences for being unaware. Look at our culture and society. It's unaware. They don't believe. There's a movie called The Devil's Advocate with Al Pacino in it. In the end of the movie, he says that one of his greatest achievements is convincing the world that he doesn't exist. Because if you're unaware, you're unequipped. You're unprepared to handle it. But he's real, and he's up to stuff. There's good news. As new creations, we have power. We're called to live that by our works. Not, to, not so that we earn salvation or to prove it, but so that we can stand firm in our actions. Because whether or not we stand firm determines the effectiveness of our message. How often do you see on social media that a Christian politician or a right-wing person who's a believer or an evangelical messes up? And the people jump on. <coughs> if we don't live it out, we expose ourselves. We lose credibility. And I'm not—I'm no better than that. I'm no better than any of the people who fall publicly. The only difference is, is I'm not a public figure, and you all fall too. The difference is, is that we have the ability to not do it. And all we have to do is stand firm against the devil. I say all we have to do. It's not that easy, I realize. But we're going to see here that if we don't do it, it determines the, you know, it affects the effectiveness of our message. We lose integrity in it. And, 
an unbelieving world. There's a line in a DC Talks there, song that says, the greatest single cause of atheism today are Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. That's what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And there's truth there. If we don't stand firm, we lose effectiveness. Number two, it keeps us in the right frame of mind. It gives us the appropriate perspective to more beneficial consequences and less detrimental consequences. Remember last week with the flesh, we talked about those whom the Lord loves, He chastens, He scourges, He disciplines to keep us in fellowship. You don't want to succumb to Satan's uh, schemes and fall into his traps. Living out Christ's commandments is what's best for us. Okay? And that means we have to stand firm. He wants to hinder our works, at the very least, keep us in our own little comfortable box of existence of ignorance and apathy and comfort. That's how he wins. This is how society's changed. Because at some point along the way, people stopped thinking accurately about God, Jesus, and Scripture. In our lifetime, not even in our lifetime, if your kids were born after 2011, in your kids' lifetime, we've seen a dramatic increase or decrease in accuracy about how we think about God, Jesus, and the Bible. If you went to school in the 60s and before that, you prayed. Yeah. Then it's no longer. I tell people that all the time. That we even set Pledge of Allegiance back then. Yeah. So they still do that. Where's Christianity and where's America going? Yeah. I remember, like, I'm from a small town, but it wasn't just my town. It was big towns, too. I was in Las Vegas, Nevada. Yeah. Huh. Like, like in... Like in school, like at the homecoming courts, when everybody would come up and they'd give their bio, and he's the son of this person, that person, he loves to do this, he attends this church. Even if somebody didn't attend church, they, they had a church because they, you know, God forbid they'd be somebody that doesn't have a church on their bio. It's just not like that anymore. It's not. And it's not just that they stop thinking accurately. A lot of culture societies just pushed him out of the way. They don't think about him at all. Number two, they stopped appropriately caring. So they're not just not accurately thinking, they're also not appropriately caring about God, Jesus, and Scripture. I'm guilty. This was me from basically the age of 5 to 30. 25 years of my life were wasted not caring about it. Because I was that guy. I wanted to just be comfortable. Just leave me alone. I believe. I have eternal life. I'm good. Give me a PlayStation. Give me college football. And leave me alone. That's who I was for 25 years. And so I have to take ownership in my part of the problem. Because I didn't appropriately care about God, Jesus, and others. If you believe what we've talked about this semester in the last five lessons, there are dead people walking that don't hear a clear God. They don't even hear a gospel message, a lot of them. Definitely not a clear one. And I don't know if we've talked about it here or not, but what if I had, what if there was a jar of poison right here and I was about to drink it? Would you say something or would you let me drink it? We got people that are going to die and be separated for eternity. And we say nothing. 
maybe we don't know what to say. Maybe we're afraid of what to say. Maybe we think that they're going to be mean or hate us. They will. Jesus says it. People will hate you for his account. Expect it. It's not that bad, by the way. thing is, is that we've retreated into an apathetic existence of living out their beliefs or unbeliefs by how we saw fit rather than what the Bible taught. Okay. This goes hand in hand with kind of what I've talked about. In order to live out what the Bible teaches, what's the prerequisite? You better know what it teaches. If we're supposed to live it out, how can we live it out if we don't know it? How can we apply it if we don't have the knowledge? It's not that knowledge isn't important, because it is. But it's what you do with it that matters. And people think that the Bible is this big, scary thing that can't be understood. It can be understood. Uh, otherwise, it's a waste. And if you think, well, that's easy for you to say, but I don't know how to start. I hear you. I was in your seat. Exact same thing. Uh, it's nothing that I did, but people were telling me the same thing that I'm telling you. <laughs> and something clicked. And it was like, okay, I do need to have integrity in the, how I believe. What I believe should match my actions. And so it's, you know, it really created this sense of, do I really believe that? Yeah, I do. Then am I just a coward? Or am I just lazy? Well, it was a little bit of both. <laughs> I was like, okay, well then how do I overcome those objections? How do I stop being scared? And how do I stop being lazy? I stopped being scared before I stopped being lazy, I'll tell you that. And then it just started with incremental conversations. Getting into Bible studies with the right people. Studying the right stuff. Uh, 412 Foundations with Brian's teaching right across the wall. And then JB's teaching two, two and the other. And those two classes were huge for me. Satan's schemes are at hand, so what do we do? <coughs> well, we start with what we, uh, the source verse for this lesson in Ephesians 6. We know that Satan's got a game, and we know that we should care. We should think accurately about God, and we should appropriately care about Him, and we shouldn't be apathetic about our existence. So how do we, how do we win? Paul says in Ephesians 10, Be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, it's not against people. It's not Christians versus Muslims. It's not Christians, it's not the United States versus Russia. Those things matter. But our real battle is against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God. Why? So that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore. Having girded your loins with truth. That's the Bible. Having put on the breastplate plate of righteousness. <coughs> having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil. There's a lot of people who struggle with doubt, and that's an important part. I'm going to read it again. Take up the shield of faith 
That's not talking about the type of faith that gives you eternal life. That's talking about the type of faith that helps you live out the Christian life. In which you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Who's the one that's deceiving and casting doubt? Satan is. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, here's another important word, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for the saints. I want to do a little exercise here in just a second. Let's Let's do a quick summary. What is the emphasis of this passage? It's to stand firm. And be alert. Why? To resist. Yes. So that you'll be able to resist. Paul tells us two things here to do in order to achieve the ability of resisting Satan. By the way, are we offensive or defensive in this passage? Offensive. No. Defensive. The armor's for defense. The shield, even your sword, is for defense. We see that when Jesus is tempted, how does he how does he answer? Satan. All the time with Scripture, with the Word, we are to stand firm and be alert so that we can resist, not so that we can attack. Because we can't, we're not strong enough to be saved. We're called to be ready to stand firm against his schemes. That's the whole point he's trying to make. Alright, in Greek there's only one word for the phrase stand firm. It's histami. It has the idea of to cause to stand or to make to stand or to make firm or to establish or to set in place in the balance. Okay, this is going to be weird but kind of fun. I need three volunteers. Spencer, I'm going to use you for sure. Yeah, come on. Come on, Russ. Kevin, you want to come with me? Actually, I don't, I don't want to throw. Yeah, come on. I want you to stand on the other side of Russ here. This passage says to stand firm and be alert so that we can resist. Okay? Uh, Spencer, put your feet together. Alright. Is that a strong stance? No. He's not standing firm. Okay. Russ, close your eyes. Okay, keep in mind, there are people who can stand firm and be alert. There's some people who just are alert but not standing firm. Some people are standing firm and not alert. If I'm Satan and I want to attack Spencer, he's easy. I'm going to knock him off balance. I'm going to wear him out because he's not standing firm. Even though he's alert, his eyes are open. Russ is dead ring. He's not even going to see it coming because he's not alert. I'm gonna, I can knock him off base really easily. But if I'm coming... Yeah, but if I'm somebody who's standing firm and alert, she can make a defense. She can resist. And God promises, by the way, that when we resist, Satan will flee. Because he didn't want that fight. Because in Christ, he can't win that fight. But when us, when we, are either not standing firm or not alert, Satan wins. Thank you, guys. That's important. And it's a visual representation. I mean, it's a cutesy representation, but the point is true. That it's not enough to just stand firm. It's not enough to just be alert. 
but it is enough to do both. Because you see it coming and you can make a strong stance. And when you resist in that way, Satan will flee. Okay? So, let's make it practical. What does it mean for you to stand for it? What is your foundation, by the way? Scripture. It is. Jesus is the foundation. Because of what he did, he laid the groundwork. He died to pay for sin. He rose again to conquer death. By faith in him, you're given the Holy Spirit. You're given spiritual gifts. You're given the ability uh, to walk by the Spirit so that you don't carry out the lust of the flesh. That's make it a good foundation. What does it mean to be alert? Just always be on attention. Mm -hmm. Just always ready for it. That's it. That takes the appropriate mindset. We're going to see later in this lesson that Paul begs us by the mercies of God to present our bodies as a living holy sacrifice. At the end of that passage, he says to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. To always be ready. Have a mindset and perspective that's focused on God. Run the race with endurance, as the author of Hebrews says with your eyes focused on Jesus. Have a strong stance and then be ready because Satan is proactive. And we're going to see it next week especially when we talk about how he does what he does. Oh, we're actually going to see it this week. Here in just a second, we're going to see that he's deceptive, he's predatory, he's proactive. And if you're not standing firm, if you're not alert, who's going to win? You guys already told me that this culture and society is losing. <coughs> and Paul says here that if we're not standing firm, we're not alert. How can you resist? How can you resist if you're not standing firm? How can you stand firm if you're not alert? You can't. So I put here that if you want to persevere in, Christian, in the Christian walk, we have to be ready to stand firm against Satan's schemes. We have to stand firm against Satan's schemes. So what does Paul mean by schemes? That's a weird word. The word there is just methodia. Guess what word we get from that? Method. Yeah, we get his methods. It's only used twice in Ephesians in both times, but it has the idea of his cunning arts or his trickery to lie in wait. Uh, it has the same word that we word for method. So we're to stand firm against Satan's what type of methods? What does that word mean? Cunning, deceit, correct? So his deceptive and predatory methods. Deceptive and predatory. It's easy to deceive you when you're not alert, by the way. When you don't see, when someone's eyes are closed, it's easy to deceive them. Satan is intentional. He's proactive. And we mentioned already, but though he's limited in time and space, he's been around <coughs> at least since Adam, and has seen how we're going to react in any given situation. And even when variables in those situations are changing, he knows how we're going to react. He baits traps that are general to mankind. That's all humanity. To gender, let's yeah, let's talk about that. 
Do men and women, are men and women prone to different sins? They are. We don't have to talk a lot of it. Men are visual. Women are more emotional. Uh, and that has a variety of implications. And I also don't want to make uh, a false statement to say that women aren't sexual because they are. I was going to say, women, I mean, they're just, I mean, there's, I don't feel like there's a difference. I mean, you're just as tempted as a man is in the Except same visual. Except it's more accepted for men to be that way. Exactly. Bingo. Yeah. And that's not, either way, that's, that is 100% true. And in either way, the Christian's response should be the same regardless of the gender. As a, especially as a brother and sister in Christ. Um, and it's also, while it's true that women are more prone, because you, women use a lot more words than men, that is true. Men can, men can sing with their mouths just as much as women can. <coughs> Gossip is sometimes attributed much more to women, and I think that's true, but it doesn't exclude from the fact, just like sex for men and women are different, men can use their tongues to hurt or to sin. If you look at Proverbs, the part of the body that is talked about the most is the mouth or the tongue. But he baits these traps that are just, so he's going he's gonna to bait traps that appeal to your natural state. What about family? I put generational sin in here. Can that be a thing? Absolutely 100%. 100%. Going through it right now. Okay, so it's true. This is a true thing. Uh, you know, monkey see, monkey do type of mentality. If somebody's trained, if somebody's trained uh, to abuse alcohol as a child, they're probably going or sees it abused. They may abuse it as a young adult. Uh, if they see certain things that are happening in the home, they're going to replicate that when they get older. Is that true? It is. But his plans can also be specific to individuals, to smaller groups, to churches, <coughs> and the like. It's important that we are evaluating that individually and as the groups that we're a part of. Where are Satan's traps? We have to have the Satan trap goggles on because he's laying them, whether we're looking or not. While he may have many methods and schemes, one thing is clear about how he operates, and that's the fact that he is intentional and proactive in his attempts to attempt and attack. The minute that you think that you wouldn't do something, you're a prime suspect for him. The minute your guard's down, he'll get you. <coughs> because he's intentional. It's not by chance that some of that stuff comes up in your life. You're like, I can't believe that happened. Why? You've got somebody who set their will against you, and he's been intentional in laying the trap, and he's proactive. He's not waiting. He's not reactive to you. He's coming after you. Let's see in Scripture. In Ephesians 6.11, we've already seen that he has schemes which have always been the same. We'll see it all throughout this lesson. That's to make people doubt God's uh, to doubt God himself, to doubt God's word, and to doubt his love. Satan loves doubt. He loves doubt in unbelievers, and he loves doubt in believers. And he abuses that. That's why Paul says, take up the shield of faith. Because those fiery arrows of doubt 
They're coming from all different directions. He seeks in 1 Peter 5a, be of sober spirit, be on the alert, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. <coughs> be on the what? Peter says the same thing. Be on the alert. Satan is our adversary and he's prowling around like a lion looking for someone he'll devour. And then he, what about this bit? This one's huge. This is where he's winning the most. He deceives. He puts these little uh, lies that attach to truths and all of a sudden something that's true isn't, but only by about 40% or 20% or 10% because he's a deceiver. He'll present a lie as a truth even about religion. Satan loves that people think that they can earn their way to heaven. Satan loves that people think that they can earn their way to God by what they do because it diminishes what Jesus did. Galatians 2.21 says that I don't nullify the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law then Christ died needlessly. Today we can say I don't nullify the grace of God because if righteousness comes through my works then Christ died needlessly. Satan loves to make people think that they can do it because it takes their faith and their trust off of God. And it diminishes Jesus' work on the cross. He attacks the gospel by distorting it, confusing it. <laughs> look into, look, just listen, turn on the radio. Go listen to bar radio and listen from preacher to preacher and listen to the differences. If you have two contrasting truths, one of them can't be true. There's distortion, there's confusion. People aren't rightly dividing the word of truth. And they present this new false gospel. And that's what Paul says. It's, the word is good news. Gospel means good news. That's what he says in Galatians. These other people are presenting you another gospel, which isn't really another because it's not good. It's false. Because people came in from behind it and told the Galatians that they had to conform to the law. He said, I just, just, there. I just told you, you foolish people. I just told you that's not how it happens. And in Galatians 2.16, he says three times that righteousness comes by faith, not by the works of the law. Let me ask you something. Do you guys remember the story uh, when Jesus is walking with the disciples and Peter says, you don't have to die? He says, you don't have to do it. You're God. What did Jesus say to him? He said, get behind me who? Satan. How'd you like it if Jesus called you Satan? Why? Why did Jesus, based on your knowledge of what you've learned today and what that word means, why did Jesus call Peter Satan? Because it was contrary. To what? To God's plan. To God's plan. What was Jesus' plan? To die. And in that way, Peter was aligning with Satan's will, not God's, when he said, you don't have to die. Because that's what Satan wanted. Satan says, I'm going to try to thwart God's every plan, especially his salvation plan. So what does that mean for us? What are we, who are we aligning with when we say, I don't care what God's will is for me or anybody else. In that way, we align ourselves with Satan just like Peter did in that moment. Because Satan deceives. 
That's his plan. It's always been the same to carry out his will by thwarting God's. He does this specifically today by attempting uh, to make us doubt God's love and to doubt God's word. Let's look at it here. I put the verse references in there, so just pay attention when we get to that verse. So let's see first how he makes us doubt God's love. Now the serpent was more crafty, there it is, than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? What's that playing into? He's he, yeah, he's sowing doubt. Does God really love you? Has he said you can't eat from any tree? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. I think Satan's response was immediate. You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat it from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. What's he doing there? <coughs> yeah. What's he making her doubt? His word. He's making her doubt his word. And by the way, it works because she changed it already. Mm -hmm. She's already changed God's word. Didn't say touch it. He didn't tell them they couldn't touch it. He said don't eat from it. But she's already changed God's word. And she said, not eat from it or touch it or you will die. He knows he's got her. She's already, she's already changed God's word. So he's just going to make her die at war. You surely will not die. For God knows in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. Why do you think he chose Eve to deceive and he didn't go to Adam first? I, I agree with what I've been taught, which is that women are more spiritually open than men and therefore more prone to spiritual attack. What do you mean by that, spiritually open? more willing to accept spiritual matters than men. You disagree? No. I mean, I'm just trying to... Conceptualize it. I think it's kind of like knowledge. If I want to learn about something and I want him to learn about something, I'm going to be the one that's going to be more apt to research it and he's going to be like, whatever you... T what, what, just let me know what it says. I'm not going to do it. Good, yeah, I think, there's, I think there's an element of that to it. I also think the order went to Adam. She had the message secondhand, maybe, so it would be easier to see somebody who didn't get the message directly than it would somebody who has received it. Secondhand yeah, that's, that's actually else. probably a better explanation. So did God tell Adam, don't touch it, don't eat it, or did no. he just say, don't eat it, and then maybe he told Eve, well, don't touch it while you're there. Like, Yeah, by all accounts, it, I mean, it seems like Adam's there. Yeah. And so... Adam should have stepped up and said, dur, 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 dur. get away. We're not supposed to do any of that. But, you know, I guess, I'm, I'm not necessarily going to defend what I'm saying, but if you think about it, like if you were to listen to a Bible study about men and women talking about things of the Spirit, there's going to be a lot more engagement and involvement about that. Uh, and it shouldn't be feeling-based. But I think there, I think it is a lot more, a lot of the times, experiential in that way. You think it had anything to do with, you know, Adam is the head, 
of the family that maybe he chose Eve because she was weaker in I do. sense. I think that's what he's getting at when he says crafty. He starts the whole thing out with that he's crafty, so he's up to something. And so he does go passively. He goes at it passively by not starting with Adam. That's, that's all interesting to think about. Here's the point, though. We have to stand firm. We have to be aware. And we have to be alert. And Adam and Eve weren't. We wouldn't have been either. And a lot of times we're still not. But we have, we have to have a solid foundation against his attacks that make us doubt God's word and his love. And I want you to think about this for your life. And maybe you're not self-aware. Or maybe you haven't been in the past and you are now. But think about your life. Like, you know, if you're given a truth serum, how often do you think that you doubt God's word? Or how often do you think that you doubt his love? Because when you start to think about it, it's like, man, maybe it's a little bit more than I thought. And when you start being aware and alert of those things in your daily life, you'll think, man, maybe, maybe Satan has got me there a little more than I thought he did. Because I'll be honest with you, that's what happened when I took this and when I first started to understand and I started to look at my life, I'm like, <coughs> Satan's got me in 10 different ways, 20 different ways. I don't even know how many ways he's got me, but I just haven't ever thought about it. And in that way, I'm falling into his snaps, into his snaps. Let me show you a quick verse. My, probably my favorite, probably my favorite passage. It's in 2 Timothy 2. And a lot of people want to say that this is unbelievers, but it's not. No, I don't think it is. So 2 Timothy, Paul's about to die, and Timothy's his protege, and he's given his last word. He's given his swan song. Probably the most important stuff that he could think to say, he's saying. Look what he says in verse 24-26. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them a repentance or a change of mind, which leads to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Just like Peter, who was a believer, how often are we caught in Satan's snares, held captive to do his will? Because we're just having we're just unaware. We just don't think about it. And we don't conceptualize our actions, our words, our deeds, our thoughts, our emotions. We don't conceptualize them as being sinful because we don't understand that when we set ourselves apart from God's will, we're doing Satan's will. It's one or the other. We're either doing God's or Satan's. So what does it take for us to come to our senses? For, to be granted repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and come to our senses having been held captive. What does he mean, grant them repentance? Say what? What does he mean, grant them repentance? So a change of mind. And the word repent means it's metaneo. It means to change your mind in the Greek. 
So the repentance there is that they're just changing their mind. Which is really probably what Peter did in that moment. <laughs> when Jesus rebuked him and said, get behind him, Peter was like, yeah, I need to change my mind about that. It's the same thing with us. When we come to our senses and we're granted repentance that leads to the knowledge of the truth, which is that God's word is true, God's will is good, and He wants those things for us and we don't have to doubt it, He loves us, he demonstrated that love by sending Jesus. Uh, and so I should live a life that's pleasing to him. That's coming to, that's repentance. Because so often I don't. I want to do what I want. I want to chase after money. I want to chase after sex. I want to chase after power. I want to chase after reputation. I want to chase after prestige and pride and do all those things. When we do that, we're caught in Satan's snares to do his will. Are those who are in opposition believers and unbelievers in that passage? Yeah, it could be either one. It could be either one for sure. <coughs> could be. Alright. Summary application. Here we'll go. Oh, wow. Look at this one. Second Corinthians 11 3. Look what, he, look what Paul writes. He says, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. What is the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ? Isn't it, isn't it what we just talked about? That at the end of the day, all this other stuff is just a side It's a sideshow. <laughs> Jesus and our relationship to Him and our relationship with the others is the only stuff we're taking with us into the kingdom, into the eternal state. None of the stuff, other stuff matters. It's simple and it's pure because it's eternal and it's lasting. But, I'm afraid that just as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, our minds are constantly led astray from that simplicity and that purity. Because he's created this false counterfeit system and set him up as the false counterfeit God over that system that we so often succumb to and we're led astray. That's what I put here. Our society as a whole has been led away from Christ. And Satan attempts to lead us astray in the same way that he always has. To doubt God's word and to doubt his love. The decision to be devoted to Christ and to walk in this newness of life is hard because Satan's schemes appeal to our flesh. We sometimes sin because we want to. Is that true? Yeah, sometimes I just say I want to do this, so I'm going to do it. Sometimes we can't see what God is doing and we lose hope and we lose faith. And in that moment we succumb to sin. And we retreat back into our comfortable little box right where Satan wants us. He's like, good. Satan doesn't have to waste any resources on an apathetic Christian. He's got them right where he wants them. He's got 28-year-old Adam sitting in a box, doing nothing, just wanting to be left alone. Do my own thing. I'll worry about the rest later. Because I have eternal life. That's right where Satan wanted me. Inactive and ineffective. However, Jesus didn't die for nothing. 
were made new crea creations with the ability to defeat the flesh, the ability to defeat Satan, by the way, and his schemes. We defeat him by resisting. In 1 John, he says, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. <coughs> because Jesus has defeated sin and death, he dealt a victorious blow against Satan. And because he's in us, we can have victory. We're called to stand firm so that we can resist. Whether or not we use the power of walking by the Spirit, and whether or not we're alert and aware, is up to each and every one of us individually and as a body. And so the question then becomes, what will we do? What will you do? That's supposed to be convicting. Because I'm afraid, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, our minds will be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. It's the only thing that matters. It is. So what have we seen? Quick summary. Satan has many names, all of which point to his character. He's the adversary. He's our accuser. He's our deceiver. He's counterfeit. That's a big one. He's prince and in charge of this fallen world. Number two, Satan is real. Okay? Don't make the mistake of thinking he's not. Because if you do, he wins. Satan's proactive in his attempts to tempt, deceive, and distract us. He's not, he's not waiting for you. He's coming after you like a roaring lion, seeking him he will devour. Number four, we're to be on our guard. Just like we saw. It's not enough to just be alert. It's not enough just to stand firm. But we want to be alert and stand firm so that we can resist. Okay? So quick application. Number one, think about or identify all of the common areas in our life that Satan attacks us. It could be pride, which appeals to all of us because everything comes out. It could be gossip, lust. What does Jesus say lust is equivalent to? It's adultery. Idolatry, drug dependency, addiction. What is hatred? What did you, that's murder. And what we can do to stand firm against those things. Because you know now, part of your identity and part of what it means to be a new creation in Christ is that you have a natural pool. You're already going to be pulled to that and Satan's going to, Satan's going to bait those traps. Specifically just for you. So identify them so that you can stand firm. <coughs> be on the alert. Have a strong, make a strong stance. Number two, pray for the ability strength and wisdom to stand firm against Satan as you live out your Christian life. Sometimes, I'll just be honest with you, this means praying against yourself. You ever thought about that? I pray against myself all the time because I know what I'm capable of. Three, as you talk about other people's lives, actions, and behaviors, Remember that Christians already have an accuser. Let's leave the dirty work to him. This is true. Uh, believers are to build one another. The word edify, you see in scripture, it means to build one another up. Don't tear people down. Satan's already doing that for you. He's coming after you. He doesn't need help. 
That's a big one. Number four, remember a basic truth about our flesh. Okay? It promotes self-interest. Satan loves that, and he's going to use it against you. He's going to use your pride and your flesh to ruin you and your relationship with others. If you remember from last week, we looked at the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. The deeds of the flesh all promote self. The deeds of the Spirit all promote God and others. So walk by the Spirit because it affects your relationship with others. Number five, be alert, be aware, and be ready to defend against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Because this is, it, you can be victorious. And you don't have to be scared of it. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. This is accomplished through prayer, petition for yourself and others, mediation, or sorry, Jesus is the mediator. That says meditation. Reflection. I'm Con- a mediator, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> Confession. That's a big one. That's how we maintain fellowship. Scripture reading and scripture memorization. If you have children, pray for them. Teach them about this. Teach them that without scaring them. <laughs> you may not want to teach your three-year-old this, but teach your teenagers that uh, there's a part of them that wants what they want, a part what God wants for them, a part what your parents want for them because it's what God wants for them. And not only that, but Satan's going to tempt that. He's going to bait traps. Because if you can train them young, they're not going to fall into the lot of the same snares that we fell into. And our culture and society is going to start to change. And those percentages are at least going to dwindle less and hopefully increase. Because really, it's up to them at this point. Some may say that's good, some may say that's bad. It's not that we can't have an impact now because we can. That's why we're here doing tonight what we're doing. But if we want that number to change and we want that needle to go in the right direction when you start talking to the next generation about changing it and teaching them these things so that they can be alert so that they can be aware so that they can realize that other Christians sin it's not because they're hypocrites it's because they have a flesh it's not because they're a worse person than them they just messed up and we all do it every single one of us and so maybe they can change it to where they can love people through us so they can build each other up so they can edify and use their gifts to serve one another in love so that the body will grow. Eventually it will happen. And I do want to give another little caveat, a little asterisk at the end of this. Some of this sounds doom and gloom when you look at the percentages and you look at how culture and society has changed. We know that ultimately it's got to go that way. Hopefully it doesn't happen on our watch. Things aren't falling apart they're falling into place. But let's just hope that at least on our watch, we're doing what we're supposed to do to live a life that's pleasing to God and to train our children up in the way that they should go so that culture and society changes or at least that the message will persist in the generation.